Turn with me, if you would, to Acts 22. We're looking at the same text we looked at last week. Um, so we're going to start in verse 23, going through chapter 23, verse 11. While you're finding your place, I want to paint a cultural picture for you. I'm looking at a culture and a nation that was once great in many ways, a center and a leader of industry, a center and a leader of the arts, a world power, and a world influencer. It's a culture that at one time held diverse thoughts on philosophy and religion, and they existed together even with diverse thoughts and beliefs. It's a culture that it's a culture and a nation that was once highly respected in the world. But this culture, this nation began to slowly change. <coughs> Excuse me. Diverse thought was no longer allowed. The government and media outlets controlled all communications so that those who wanted to oppress people had an avenue to push their agenda through propaganda. The propaganda redefines words and psychologically retrains the human brain to be desensitized to what all people know to be wrong. All citizens are expected to fall in line with the new agenda and everyone who opposes it will be severely dealt with. There's no longer freedom of speech. Rather, submission is required. You're fine to disagree, but don't make that known and don't get in the way of the government's agenda. And a specific group of people are being targeted as the enemy of the state and the enemy of the culture. Now, because of the oppression and the government control, because the government wants to crush anyone who speaks out against the who speaks out for the rights of all people, the church is afraid to speak up. They're afraid to even preach the gospel. The government, in more ways than one, has control over the preaching in the churches. So God's light of truth in this dark world has been effectively dimmed. Now, that's not a pr very pretty picture, is it? So what happens when injustice has been done? What happens when... Oppression takes place. What are, how are we supposed to respond as believers, as the church, as a unit? What is God doing or what is God allowing to be done? And what does obedience look like in those situations? So we're going to look today, I told you last week, we're going to look at how Paul responds to injustice. Um. And then we're going to look a little bit at how this affects us, how we apply it to life. Um, and hopefully, even though this is heavy stuff, hopefully when we walk out of here, we will feel prepared to respond in a God-honoring way. Let's uh, look. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the text like I did last week as we go through the pieces that I want to draw attention to. I'll just read it as we go. Uh, so let's pray, if you would, and then we'll look at the first point in your notes. If you are able to stand, would you please honor 
God, as we pray and just bring our hearts before him. Lord, we, um, we have uh, a Savior who loves us so much that he left his glory and he came down and he laid down his life for us. We have in you the only truth the truth that is necessary for all people to know in order to be saved and to know eternity in your presence once we pass from this life. It is the most important message that anyone has. <clears throat> but sometimes things, people, groups of people try to put a stop to that. Try to exercise um, authority or try to oppress people. And God, we want to be a group of people who, even in the midst of uh, persecution or maybe even death, are willing to proclaim the only hope that mankind has in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so <clears throat> last week we talked about the three things that were injustices that were thrust upon Paul. And today, I told you that today we would talk about how he responded to those. So the, ver the first point in your notes is going to be the three things he responds in each of those situations. Um, I'm going to cover those pretty quickly <clears throat> because they're pretty self-explanatory. They're in the text. There's a fourth thing that we learn from the broader context of Paul's life through the rest of Acts, through the, his writings that I want to talk about, but we'll pull that in later afterward. Uh, so, in your, in your notes, the first thing we're going to look at is lessons that are learned from Paul in order to respond to injustice. Lessons learned from Paul. And wh what we had in the first situation was the potential flogging. Paul had... Um, he had been dragged out and beaten by the crowd, and the Roman centurion pulled him off, and Paul said, can I address the crowd? So he addressed the crowd, and then the crowd was in an uproar again, so they, they pulled him off, and the centurion said, or the, sorry, the commander said to the centurion that they were to examine him by flogging. So they were going to flog him to get the information out of him. Why, are, why is everybody in an uproar? And so what we see Paul do in this situation is he claims his rights. He's a citizen of Rome. As a, as a Roman citizen, he had specific rights that he could appeal to or he could claim. And it was illegal for them to flog a Roman citizen. And so he just pulled the Roman citizen card at the right time and said, by the way, is it legal for you to do this? And so he claimed a right that he had. The second situation that we see is when he's standing before the Sanhedrin and the, um, the chief priest, Ananias. Uh, Paul, Paul just says, brothers, I've lived my life with a clear conscience before God. And the chief priest instructs somebody standing next to him to strike him in the face. So that's the second injustice that is thrust upon him. And Paul's response is the same as in the situation with the Roman centurion. Paul's a citizen of Rome, but Paul is also a Jew. 
Paul knows the Old Testament law. He knows that the high priest is instructed to treat people who are on trial well and fairly and to not do anything unjust, but to wait until there's been conviction and then enforce the punishment. Paul has not been convicted. He's just now been stood in front of them and he's made one statement and Ananias um, instructs him to be struck on the face. So Paul again claims his rights. He knew that the Old Testament law uh, forbid that kind of treatment of somebody on trial and and he then gives a stinging rebuke to the chief priest. Now, he didn't know that the so for some reason didn't know that the person who gave that instruction was the chief priest and so he then apologizes because he is a man who will follow the law even though he's being accused of not and he knows that you're not supposed according to God's law you're not supposed to speak badly about one of God's ordained leaders so that's the second injustice, and he responds in the same way. He claims his rights as a Jewish, as a person who is part of God's covenant people. The third thing was that he was being placed on trial as an innocent man. And what Paul does is he simply gives a defense. Now, you need to, you need to also know that anytime Paul gives a, gives a defense, there's an element, at least, of the gospel message. And so... He gives a defense and he says, uh, the reason I'm on trial here is because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. At that point, the Sanhedrin splits in half because the Pharisees agree with that and the Pharisees start supporting Paul. But now there's this chaos and this uproar in the Sanhedrin and Paul is pulled out again and taken to the barracks and put in chains. So what we see here is there's an element of us having, as specific citizens of a country, having specific rights that belong to the citizens of that country. Paul told the, the, not the church, told the people of Athens when he first was traveling through and he was presenting the gospel, he told the people of Athens that God has placed each person where they live at the time that they live for the purpose of knowing him. And so there's a reason why Paul was a citizen of Rome and a, and a part of God's, Jew, um, God's covenant people as a Jew. And because of those things, he had rights that he could claim. And so there's an element here that as we are in a similar situation, we are in a nation where we've been given rights um, that are supposed to not be violated. There is an element of when injustice takes place that you can appeal to your rights. It's okay to do that. It's okay to um, appeal to the authorities to uphold your rights. Um, and so we see Paul do that. And we've been placed in a, in a nation where that is the promise of our, that's the promise of our founding fathers and the documents they founded to govern our nation. So it's okay at times to say, I feel like there's an injustice that's been done to me. Can you make it right? The most important thing that we learned from Paul, though, is the last thing that we're going to talk about, which we will come back to. But this is just kind of on the surface what we see in the situation that he's dealing with here. Now, I mentioned last week, before we get into the second point, let me just say this. I mentioned last week 
that Paul faced injustice. We've seen the church throughout its history face injustice. Jesus has, has basically given a promise that if you follow him, there will be persecution that comes your way. And so I mentioned last week that I think injustice is coming closer and closer to us as the church in America. And when I painted that cultural picture at the beginning, when I was describing that culture and that nation, how many of you thought that that sounded like America today? It does sound a lot like America today, but I was actually describing Nazi Germany. But there are a lot of similarities between what happened and led up to what became Nazi Germany and that culture and what we see in America today. And I think the church has to be aware of that. So we're going to look at some lessons that we learned from history. Lessons that we learned from history. I'm going to give you some examples of our postmodern culture, our anti-Christian culture that looks a lot like Nazi Germany. Like Germany, we see people today who are losing their jobs if they hold to a viewpoint that opposes the anti-Christian culture that is pressing in on the church. And if you make your voice known and you speak out against that culture that is trying to basically erase God from everything so that there is no, no, nothing in our culture that has any kind of influence over you, you and your life that has to do with God and the way he has instructed us to live. If you speak out against that, people are losing their jobs for it. And so what we saw in Nazi Germany that we are also seeing today is that people are keeping their mouth shut People are not speaking out to teach people what is God's truth because they don't want to lose their jobs. They need to feed their families. They need to pay their bills. In Nazi Germany, the church kept its mouth shut. For the, there were, there, I don't want to say all of them. There were some who stood up and they paid the price for standing up against Hitler. But most of the church in Germany, no matter the denomination, most of the churches in Germany kept their mouth shut because the government controlled the salary of the pastors. So if you speak out against what I'm doing, I just will make sure that you don't get paid and you can't put food on the table for your family. So most of them went along with it. In America today, if there are books or TV shows or movies that oppose that viewpoint in any way, that anti-Christian viewpoint from the culture, they're being canceled or they're being pulled off of shelves. I see this happening almost weekly. Children are, who are in schools are being taught that if you are a certain race, you're a bad person. That was happening in Nazi Germany as well. They were teaching, they were, they were removing things, removing any kind of media that you could get your hands on that might have a di- an opposing viewpoint than what Hitler had in mind. And then they were taking their, 
their propaganda, pushing it through all the media outlets. So it's the only thing that you could hear, the only thing that you would read. And then they were taking that into the schools and indoctrinating the children to think the way that they wanted them to think. Not teaching them to grow up to think for themselves, but teaching them to grow up to think the way the Nazi government wanted them to think. Going along with that same thing, something that's been happening for 100 years in America since the 1920s, is revisionist history, where people started back in the 20s um, removing any kind of reference to God or any kind of reference to the founding of our nation and the founding documents of our nation being built upon biblical principles. Any of that was being removed from textbooks so that kids were not learning that stuff. It's, um, it's gotten worse and worse as that hundred years has gone on. And we've gotten to a point now where we're not just changing the history a little bit here and there so that we can push a thought or an agenda or trying to retrain our brains to think one way. Today we've hit the point where we're just erasing history. Any history that is being considered offensive is being erased. And here's the danger of that. And I'm not, not going to defend the mistakes that we've made in our history. We've made some, some evil, evil decisions and a- took some evil actions, instituted evil things in America. And I'm not, so I'm not defending those things at all. But I do want to say this. If you erase that from history, if you, if you just remove it and nobody can look back to see what we did and where we've come from, we are bound to repeat it. It may not look the same, but you, if, you, if you remove from your mind the mistakes you've made in your past, you do not learn from those mistakes and you will repeat them again. That's one of the worst things that a nation could do as it's trying to move forward with the future generations. So that was happening in Nazi Germany. They were, again, changing everything, teaching only what they wanted people to know. They were basically turning people into into beings that thought the way that they thought and had no emotional connection to have any kind of conviction for doing something that they knew to be wrong. One last thing. To soften the image of ungodly thoughts, behaviors, ideologies, and to make us have less of an adverse reaction to them, words are being redefined. In Nazi Germany, they redefined words. They came up with code words that people on the inside knew what they meant, but they sounded not that bad or they sounded like they're just normal things to people in the culture, people that were just citizens of the nation. Words have meanings. Any Seinfeld fans in here? One of my favorite lines from him is, words have meanings. Words have meanings. You can't change the meaning. But if you can successfully convince a mass group of people that something means different, means something different than what it does, then you have successfully learned how to control their thinking. 
So it appears to me, and people would, there are people who would disagree with me, I'm sure, but it appears to me that America is on the same path that Nazi Germany was on as they led up to some of the most evil things that a country could do. And I feel like we're moving at full speed ahead. I feel like we are in a dangerous place. Now, if I told you not everybody's going to agree with me, some people are going to think you're exaggerating. Some people are going to think you're being dramatic about this. So I'm going to let me just give you an example of something that took place two weeks ago. There was a pastor in Canada. His name's James Coates. Two weeks ago, he was arrested for holding a church service and not following their COVID-19 restrictions. Now, that, that's not an injustice. They put a structure in place, and, you know, if, if the government puts a structure in place and you know the consequences and you do it anyway, then it's not really an injustice that he was arrested for it. I mean, we could make, a, we could make arguments all day long, but just on the surface— he knew if he did this that he was probably going to be arrested, and he was. However, here's the injustice. When he was arrested, he was arrested for not following COVID-19 restrictions. So one would think that the conditions of his release would be that he start following COVID-19 restrictions. But that's not how it played out in his situation. They arrested him for not following COVID-19 restrictions, his, the conditions of his release were you cease being a pastor and you no longer preach in the name of Jesus. So they hooked him with something that they could get him legally with, but their desire was revealed in his conditions for release. The desire is to silence the gospel message. Um, this is a tweet that his wife put out. Now, th again, this is two weeks old. But she said this, James has been in isolation in a cell block since yesterday morning. So just that in and of itself. We're not talking about like a serial killer here. We're talking about somebody who just didn't follow guidelines for COVID and they put him in isolation. So she said, he's, James has been in isolation in a cell block since yesterday morning. His hearing didn't go very well. The crown went for the jugular. The JP, I don't know what JP is, but it's somebody who's in authority. The JP says he didn't want to detain him. He wasn't interested in making a martyr of him. He could walk if he just sets aside his God-given pastoral duties, but he can't do that. That's just in our backyard. That's just our neighbor right across the border to the north. We're not talking a nation across the, across the globe where persecution and silencing Christians has been the norm for decades. We're talking about a place that in Canada where at one time looked a lot like America. So if, if there are people who think I'm being dramatic or think that I'm blowing this out of proportion, 
That just happened two weeks ago in Canada. The other thing I would say is if somebody thinks I am being dramatic about this, then I would encourage you to read this book. This book, I, I read it a couple weeks ago. It's called When a Nation Forgets God, written by Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He's a pastor, and um, uh, he's on Moody Radio, so many of you probably know him. When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Lessons We Must Learn from Nazi Germany. Now, let me tell you this. This was published in 2010. 2011 or 12, I started reading it, but I didn't get through the whole thing. Um, it's kind of the story of my life. I start a book, something else interrupts me, and I realize five years down the road, oh, I never finished that book. But I remember thinking with the little bit that I read like nine or ten years ago, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this looks like America today. So I picked it back up in February and read through it. I started over, read through it, the whole thing. And nine or ten years later, things have ramped up so much in a culture that wants nothing to do with Christ that... If I thought it looked just like America then, it's a thousand times worse today. So if someone thinks that I am exaggerating and blowing this out of proportion, I would encourage you to read this because it is eye-opening. Um, the patterns that, they, that we saw take place in Germany under Hitler's reign to get people to do his bidding, whatever he said, are the things that we're seeing executed by the culture today in America. The pressure from the culture on the church is increasing. And I think there's going to be widespread injustice done in our lifetime. Probably sooner than what I had once thought. When I first read this, uh, when I first started it ten, nine or ten years ago, I thought, you know, we're probably going to face persecution as the church in America. But I was thinking, like, maybe not my lifetime, maybe my kid's lifetime. If it was my lifetime, maybe the very end of my life. Um, I'm not sure now. I think it could come sooner than that. All right, so... Those are things that I think the church has to learn from history. You can't erase history because if you do, you don't learn from the mistakes. And the church in Nazi Germany remained silent. Let me tell you this to show you how bad it got. There was a church that had a set of railroad tracks behind its, behind its property. And they could hear when trains would go by. And on Sunday morning, they realized that at a specific time, a train went by every Sunday morning at the same time carrying carloads of Jews who were being shipped to concentration camps or gas chambers. When the Jews were coming by and they saw the church building, they would scream out, begging them for help. And the church, rather than doing something, the church decided 
to reschedule things, how, th- how they did things in their service so that when that time came and they could hear the train coming, they made sure they were always singing a hymn at the time. And when the train came, they sung at the top of their, vo- at the top of their lungs, top of their voices as loud as they could to drown out the cries of the people who were being shipped off to mass killings. We can't, we can't allow the church to be silenced like that. All right, now let's get back into the last thing we learned from Paul. We learn, we have lessons that we learn from Paul's chains. So the first three were pretty obvious. He, he appealed to his rights. He gave a defense of himself, which those things are okay to do. But the reality of the fact is, at some point, you can give all the defenses and you can appeal to all of the rights that you have and people who want to silence the church don't care. And you will be, at some point, you will have the possibility of being placed in chains anyway. Look at verse 10 of our text. So the Sanhedrin is in an uproar. They, they pull Paul out. Verse 10, when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, if that's not injustice, I don't know what is. Paul has done nothing wrong. He was in the temple. The crowd dragged him out and were beating him. The commander of the Roman army got him separated from them and instructed them to put him in the barracks. The crowd was the one that was being violent and mistreating somebody, and Paul got put in the barracks. Now, Paul got to give a defense to the crowd because the Roman uh, guard let him, but as soon as they were in an uproar again, they took him and they were going to flog him. So the crowd has the issue, but Paul was taken and they were going to flog him. Then he stood before the Sanhedrin and he had been struck in the face, even though he shouldn't have been. And he stands in front of them as an innocent man being treated like the worst of criminals. And when the Sanhedrin is in an uproar and angry with each other, they take Paul and put him in the barracks. So I don't know, I don't know how there's a single act of justice in that whole event. But what we learn from Paul is how to respond to injustice when you still end up in chains. The first thing that we need to know is what we see in Isaiah 45, 19. Paul understood this. We have to know this too. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. I speak the I the Lord speak the truth I declare what is right. So the first thing we have to understand is that justice is born out of God's character. And any variation from truth, any variation from his character perverts justice. Justice is born out of God's perfect righteousness and if we do not um 
if, if we do not base justice upon his character of righteousness, then we pervert justice. This is a fallen world, and at best, nations are run by fallen people. At worst, nations are run by evil people. And when evil people are in charge, Satan will use them to target the church. And all you have to do is look at history. You could look at Nazi Germany. The churches that did stand, the few voices that did stand up against Hitler, they pay the price. You can look at Old Testament Israel. When the northern kingdom was attacked and conquered by Assyria, they were dragged off to exile by a, a people who history has has labeled the most brutal and cruel and evil people, um, uh, you know, at least in the top five of nations. Uh, the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon. They were taken off into exile, made slaves. God's people were were targeted by evil people who were in charge. Now, God had them sent off to exile because they were disobedient, but God then punished Assyria because they mistreated. They, they went beyond what God had allowed Assyria to do and mistreated people, and so God then punished Assyria. So you don't have to look very far in history. You can see that God's people or the church is targeted when there are evil people in charge. Satan uses them to target him. So what we learn from Paul comes from not only verse 10, the fact that he's still in chains, but and the rest of Acts, because he's a, he's a prisoner from this point to the end of Acts, but also from his letters. We learn from Paul that Paul is a prisoner of Christ. Paul never viewed his imprisonment as being a prisoner of Rome. He never viewed it as being a prisoner of any specific person. He wasn't a prisoner of Caesar. He always referred to himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So Paul's understanding of this is really clear if you look at his prison letters. His prison letters are the ones that he wrote from prison. That's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. I'm going to read you five places in those four letters where Paul demonstrates this. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Not a prisoner of Rome, not I've been mistreated, woe is me, the Jews betrayed me. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 4, 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Philippians 1, 12 and 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me ha has really served to advance the gospel. So first of all, I'm in chains, and it's actually been for the purpose of making the gospel go out and advance in places it wouldn't have before. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Colossians 4.3, pray also for us that God may open, us, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And Philemon doesn't have chapters because it's so short. So verse 1, 
the introduction to the letter, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So Paul never viewed his imprisonment as being something that was done by a person or a group of people or a country or a government. It was always for, I am in chains for Christ. So the implication is this, that Paul never viewed that imprisonment as a negative thing. He never viewed it as something out of God's hand or out of God's control. He always understood that becoming a prisoner was God's will and God's way of opening a new ministry for Paul. Paul went from being a free man whose ministry was proclaiming the gospel wherever the Holy Spirit took him to being a person in bondage in whatever cell that the Holy Spirit landed him in proclaiming the gospel there. So for Paul, it was simply a transition from one type of gospel ministry to a different type of gospel ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that he enjoyed it and it was great. And once he was released, he wanted to go back. It just means Paul understands God called me to preach the gospel whether I'm free or whether I'm in chains. And there were people who heard the gospel, people who guarded him, the people in authority who had to listen to his defense. He preached the gospel to everyone. And he even mentions in his letters, I think in the, think in the Philippian letter, he mentions that all of Caesar's household greets the church. So all of Caesar's household had heard the gospel and many of them had given their life to Christ and were wanting to take part in his letter to the church. I think it's Philippians. I didn't, hadn't prepared to say that, but if you want to know, I can look it up this week. Paul never viewed himself as a victim of his circumstances, but rather that God was ordaining everything according to his perfect will, ordaining it for God's own glory and for Paul's good. So let me wrap up with this. In the here and now, I think we need to be aware of the spiritual battle that's ahead of us. We would be foolish to not acknowledge that something is coming. And I I don't say that lightly. I just say, I say that to mean that there are people who want to, they want to not think about it. And I don't think that's a wise thing to do. We need to do what we can to protect our freedom to worship and our freedom to proclaim the gospel, but we also need to realize that at any day those freedoms could be taken away. And we need to resolve right now that we're going to stand firm for Christ, even if that means we have to face persecution or maybe even death. No soldier goes into battle without having first been trained. You have to be trained so that you know when... When the attack comes, you have to know what your job is so well that you just kick into autopilot and start engaging. And spiritual warfare is no different. If you wait until the culture has pressed in on you and is putting the pressure on and squeezing you, if you wait until that point to resolve that you're going to remain firm and you're not going to compromise your faith, you are more likely to cave and to compromise. God is preparing you, training you with his word 
and with the accountability of the church. He's given you the power of prayer to prepare for this battle. Now, here's the good news. Even if we end up like Paul and we at some point end up in chains for our faith, the good news is what Paul said in Athens in chapter 17 of Acts. Speaking of God, he said, He has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having first proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So justice is born out of God's character. And the good news is that one day, even if we don't feel like we see it on earth, there will be a day when he will sit in judgment on all people. So if your life has been covered by the blood of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, then Christ will be your advocate standing next to the throne of God. We need to remember... We need to do this. We need to concern ourselves with this. Matthew 10. This is, these are the words of Jesus. I'm going to close with this. Matthew 10, 28 and verses 32 to 33. Jesus is telling his disciples and anybody else who is listening. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. God, I know that's heavy content. But the reality is, Paul appealed to his rights. Paul gave a logical, well-supported defense of his conversion and the gospel message he preaches. And he still ended up in chains. And we know that he was in prison for at least two years. Um, We don't know exactly how his death came about. But tradition that's been handed down from the church from generation to generation says that he was put to death by Rome. But Paul viewed his imprisonment not as mistreatment, not as injustice, not as um, anything that is out of your hand, but that it was actually ordained by you. And because of that, there were people who heard the gospel and received Christ who may not have heard it. So Paul looks at it just as a transition from one ministry to the other. Lord, I pray that we would have that kind of resolve, that we'd be able to look at life's setbacks like that, Not as setbacks, but as just a change of environment, a change of scenery for our ministry of proclaiming Christ. Please give us a resolve and then by your spirit empower us to hold to that resolve that we will not compromise in the face of anything, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen.